Nå er det tid for nordisk på trikk. Welcome to our podcast featuring interviews, music, folk tales, and lots of hygge, all with a Nordic flavor. I'm your host, Eric Stavney. Good morning and good evening, whatever works for you. This podcast is a little different from my usual ones. It concerns itself with science, what it is, how it's done, and what it means to be a scientist. You'll get to meet an eminent archaeologist to help document the ancient culture of Polynesia. You'll hear words from another archaeologist who studied the giant black statues on Easter Island on Rapa Nui. And, of course, you'll meet, through our discussion, one of Norway's most celebrated heroes. When I was eight years old, my parents took me to a museum in Oslo, where, in this dimly lit interior, I remember this raft of logs with lots of ropes, and there was this woven hut in the middle, and this big sail with a huge, scary, bearded face on it. At the time, I couldn't see why it was in a museum and how six guys sailing the raft 5,000 miles across the Pacific from Peru to a tiny island in French Polynesia, why that was noteworthy. I mean, my gosh, I was, I was eight. My parents even bought me a model kit of balsa logs with a sail from which I could build a replica of the raft. And that raft from the expedition spearheaded by Tor Heyerdahl. That raft stayed in my head for another 55 years. Fast forward to college, where I earned degrees in science and biology, which led to me standing at the lectern in front of a science class on day one some 40 years later. Now, our university science textbook mentioned Tor Heyerdahl, but not in terms of his raft expedition, or his successful book, but in terms of those giant black statue heads on Easter Island. Of course, by then, I was well aware of the Moai on Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, carved out of the volcanic basalt of the island, and inexplicably, by some means, transported across the island and erected into vertical positions. Now, this science textbook described an experiment to the Norwegian expedition of 1955 on Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, headed up by Heyerdahl, in which a team used logs and ropes to see if they could move one of those head statues across the plain into a hole and get it upright. Heyerdahl wasn't the first to try this kind of an experiment, and he certainly wasn't the last. There's been several other attempts to figure out how that could have been done. But the science textbook used this as an example of experimental archaeology, which in fact Heyerdahl is known for from his raft expedition. We learn by trying to see how it was done. This was also an application of Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the right one. That is, things that we can't figure out you know, when we're investigating them probably come to be through some kind of simple explanation. And in this point, 
humans did it. Humans transported those statues across the island and put them up. So what was the motive behind the raft expedition? Well, from what I've learned, he had found similarities in architecture and sculpture among the Incan areas in Peru, like those giant heads for one. He found that uh, there was this cultivated crop of sweet potatoes in Polynesia, and yet we know sweet potatoes were native to South America. All of this suggested that there was some kind of contact between the South American Indians and Easter Island. So that is the sum of what I knew about Tor Heyerdahl. I hadn't read any of his books. I did see the, the documentary, but I hadn't read Aku Aku and, and other amazing books like that. So there I was at the lectern talking about the philosophy of science, that proposals that explain how things work, hypotheses, right, they're called. And to be scientific, these hypotheses have to be testable, falsifiable, measurable, and predictive. Science, I told them, is a process, and it's also a body of accumulated knowledge. Most importantly, it's a community of scholars. It's the community that takes a hypothesis proposed by a member of the community, a scientist, and this hypothesis's provisional proposal or statement uh, undergoes exhaustive observation and testing in a quantitative fashion by making observations in archaeology, you'll be digging and doing other studies by many, many people under the same conditions or similar conditions so one of the hallmarks of a scientist is acknowledging and integrating both the supportive and non-conforming or unsupportive evidence into a whole. You can't cherry-pick evidence from the body of knowledge just to support your own pet hypothesis. More studies usually indicate that the hypothesis needs to be abandoned. It might be de rigueur in the time when it was brought up, but science marches on, and uh, a scientist with a hypothesis is obligated to change, or abandon, modify the hypothesis or the idea based on new evidence. So after that time, I sort of forgot about Tor Heyerdahl for several decades. I hadn't heard about the Norwegian hero for a long time, really since that 1955 expedition to Rapa Nui. And then word came in 2002 that he had passed away. What had Heyerdahl been doing since 1955, I wondered? And now today, in 2022, the 75th anniversary of the Kontiki expedition, I decided to look into it. What I learned surprised me. Heyerdahl kept busy. He wrote many books, articles, papers, gave conference presentations. He built the Ra and Tigris reed boats that went on expeditions. He oversaw excavations in various places. But for me, it was as if he had gone quiet, or rather his ideas, his hypotheses that were part of who he was were no longer found in what I was reading. His credibility as a scientist seemed to have waned, and I thought, why was that? I didn't even care so much about what he found, about his conclusions, as about how he used the scientific method. Before we go further, 
let's acknowledge that science and the documentation of truth or facts, journalism if you will, have been having a rough time lately. Many folks listened exclusively to their gurus, their favorite presidents, their talk show hosts, their social media pundits, people they admire, and they tend to believe whatever they say, even in the absence of evidence or evidence to the contrary. After all, everything you read in books or on the internet is true, right? This atmosphere has given fringe science, as Michael Gordon calls it, a boost. Those so-called fields of study that are not scientific, they might have been once, but they are no longer that. And so they masquerade as science, pseudoscience, some people call it. And so when these fringe scholars, as I'll call them, run into trouble with the scientific community, they feel scorned and shamed and sidelined by the mainstream community. Established scientists won't take them seriously. When it's clear that the scientists won't engage in a discussion of what the fringe scholar is proposing, they often feel persecuted by the scientific establishment and hostile. And as I started to read about Tor Heyerdahl's work, I discovered that he felt persecuted by the academic establishment. Heyerdahl once said, I wish people would quit seeing me as some daredevil who went over Niagara Falls in a barrel. He badly wanted to be accepted by the scientific community. But he began to feel that so-called scientists were dismissive of his work, they were jealous of his fame from the popular books he wrote, and instead of being welcomed, accused of doing fringe science. Since much of Heyerdahl's early work with the Contiki and Easter Island dealt with Polynesia and the origins of people on Polynesia, I decided to contact an eminent archaeologist of Polynesian culture, mainstream archaeologist, Dr. Matthew Spriggs. He has done a substantial amount of work in uncovering and documenting perhaps the earliest Polynesian cultures, the Lapita people. Dr. Spriggs is an emeritus professor of archaeology, now retired from the Australian National University. In our upcoming discussion, you'll hear references to Victor Melander's doctoral thesis about Heyerdahl. Dr. Spriggs was Victor's major advisor. But the persecution thing, yeah, when you actually go into it, I mean, there were, it was like about five people who cared about the Pacific at the time he claims he was being persecuted, you know. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, I think really persecuted himself. I mean, in that, you know, he, especially in the 60s, strides being made in Pacific archaeology. And he just, you know, he'd go to the same conferences where people are presenting this stuff. It's just that, like he wasn't listening or something, you know. He, he just, just wasn't taking on board anything anyone else said. You know, his, his views were made up and that was it. And so, I, you know, that, that's why I think it's disappointing. And then he gets back into Easter Island again in the 80s after all of these rare expeditions and stuff. And again, he doesn't actually engage with any of the archaeology done in the Pacific in the preceding, you know, 30 years. So you can see why people kind of got fed up with him. But yeah. in, the, in the 50s and 60s, people took him seriously. Yeah, probably most of the people who were around didn't accept, you know, what he was saying. But, you know, he was given a hearing. Um, 
And so I think the whole thing about the heroic lone scholar and it, it's just a complete thing. He, he just made it up. Yeah. So, and you had said that, that there wasn't really a lot of people in the field. And you said even folks who were not academic or not associated with a museum could get their ideas published to some extent. Into the 50s. I think by the, you know, really what happens after the war in Pacific archaeology is that it, it professionalizes. You know, before the war, there aren't any professional archaeologists in the Pacific you know it's not taught in any university and um, so really it's the 50s it starts to professionalize and that's when people who basically have their own ideas they've been pursuing on their own like Heyerdahl they start to get left out because as with so many other subjects you know there's professional standards are developed the subject changed one notable thing um, that I, I remember, and it's in the 100th anniversary book about Hadal, is that I think Don Ryan has this section taken from some sort of unfinished work of Hadal's. Um, what do you call it? Stormy way, Wakes of a Raft, Tor Hadal's last work. And in there, Hadal says something like, yeah, it's true, they found a few pieces of, of pottery in the Western Pacific. But he sort of, sort of dismisses it. I mean, at the time, there were 200,000 BC lapidocytes known all the way through to Tonga and Samoa. And, you know, to dismiss that as like a few pieces of pottery have been found, it just shows he was, he'd kind of lost it really in terms of having any kind of concern with the science. Yeah. I mean, initially, I think he made some early conclusions and people said oh you didn't bring up that there's these other studies and then this guy did this and these people did that and he said well i didn't know about them so mm -hmm. i i couldn't include them and i think the word amateurish is what came up is well unfortunately that is how science is done right yeah. you look at the greater body of evidence and you talk about what it suggests as of today Right. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the end of that book, and I asked the editors to include it, is his first article, pretty much his first article in English about his theories, published in 1941 in 41. a sort of, yeah, emigre journal of a sort of European scientists who'd fled, uh, fled Nazism. All of his ideas, yeah, so many of his ideas are already there. So before he even was really, yeah, when he was right, just first starting to meet some some of the scientists who are involved in all this he's already got his ideas are already there and he, the fact that it, they don't change over so many years it's not a good sign you know because everybody's ideas changed right you know except his <laughs> yeah, so there's, yeah it is that sort of thing that you know that the gifted amateur i mean clearly he was an incredibly smart guy yeah yeah he, he develops these ideas and then it's like anyone who disagrees with him, oh, they're persecuting him. You know, I see that all the time when you get, sometimes you get these you know, difficult students doing their PhDs and you try and tell them, no, you know, that idea is not very good. And they just kind of knuckle down. They won't accept it. And right. it's a sign of intellectual immaturity, basically. You know, and he kind of maintained that intellectual immaturity really for his whole life, you know. <laughs>
Yeah, and that's uh, supposed to be how you know what science is about, right? Is that you continue to weigh in and engage with other folk and move ahead with developments, right? Contribute to the discussion rather than your opinion, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. The point was that people would criticize his work, but he never answered their criticisms. They'd say, you know, what about this? You, you never see a paper by him saying, ah, I was criticized by this guy and his point was this. But in fact, you know, I think he's wrong or I accept that or there's no discourse going on, at least in the public sphere. But he actually maintained cordial relations with all sorts of archaeologists like Kenneth Emery in Hawaii. Right. You know, for a long time, a writer Solzvik tells me that yeah, there's all sorts of correspondence between him and Kenneth Emery. Very huh. cordial, you know, throughout the 50s into the 60s. Um, so, you know, people kind of, I think in the end, people decided, well, he's, yeah, he's got his idea, he's fixed on it. You know, we can't really do much of, about that. But he's, a, you know, when you meet him, he's a pleasant guy or something. You know? and so they, they continued to correspond with him. So what about the way he put stuff out there? So what some could say he wasn't given his time to air his theories in the academic literature. And so then he turned to the popular press and newspapers and won the love of the common people. I mean, you know, and then you say, oh, well, the scientists were jealous or but that isn't how you do science, right? Do you think that was played into it is the way he expressed? No, he started off doing stuff in the popular press. I mean, yeah. from when he first went to the Marquesa, he was writing articles for Norwegian newspapers. So, huh. um, but he did, you know, he did publish in you know, a whole series of academic papers in the 50s. I think from 47 onwards, published 1947 to 55, he published one book which was accepted as an academic book and reviewed in academic journals, 17 academic papers. Well, that's you know. decent. So, yeah. Um, and these were academic papers and they were in journals. And even, you know, his stuff in the 60s, he was attending academic conferences. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of evidence that he used? He liked legends and myths, right? He liked symbology, similar statues, pyramids there and over there. Are those the kinds of things that he more or less stood on rather than what they call pit archaeology? Very much so. So, for instance, you know, from the 1930s onwards, the Austronesian languages, of which Rapa Nui is one, of course, right. uh -huh. um, were subgrouped by Otto Dempfel in mm -hmm. Germany. That literature was known to scholars in the Anglophone world from the 30s onwards. I suppose quite a few of them could speak German. And then certainly by the 50s, you know, that subgrouping of Austronesian languages in general terms was extremely well known. Yeah. But he was still quoting people with weird ideas from the 19th century. Oh, you know, I spoke to this guy in somewhere in South America. He told me that their word for this is the same as the word in Polynesia or something. And, <laughs> and that, so, so, yeah, he never understood uh, historical linguistics, I think, at all, that he, he just kind of didn't get it and was much happier just engaging with literature from the 19th century. And again, this is a sort of common pattern with these smart amateurs or people who they move outside their own area right. into another area. And then they start sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, they prefer to believe what people wrote 100 years ago than what people have written 20 years ago or 10 years ago.
Heyerdahl's very much, I think very much the same. You know, he would quote a lot of old ideas, which were already kind of had been superseded. And he just sort of, could, you know, he liked them. He preferred them. I don't know if it's because they wrote in a way that was more like the way he thought, because again, they were a sort of an untrained, unscientific mind of people who had, at the time, they would have been bright ideas. And I think he, he liked that kind of writing. But when the writing got very scientific, I think he didn't really, didn't really like it anymore. The question that, that I've done a lot of thinking about lately, just especially in the last year, year and a half with COVID and all the stuff that's happened is what kind of responsibility does a, a person who, who wants to call himself a scientist have in terms of public discourse? I, I know Heyerdahl was a, had this chip that he thought that scientists refused to speculate or correlate one thing to another, which is obviously not true. But then he would speculate publicly or in his books. What kind mm. of what kind of responsibility does a scientist have in terms of public speculation? I, I don't see mainline scientists coming up with ideas that aren't supported and there's always provisional, especially medical science, right? They don't want people running out just because there's a study that says caffeine helps you jump 50 feet in you know, one go. What do you think about that? Where's, what's your views on that? Well, I kind of would take it a bit differently in that one thing that is quite consistent from the 30s onwards is that he really liked listening to the oral traditions of oh. native that he met. That was a sort of a, certainly a, an anthropological strand right. into right. the 40s and 50s. But then it went very much out of fashion hmm. as archaeology developed in the Pacific. And there was a real reaction against it. Well, the interesting thing is that now it's kind of coming back into fashion. Right. And, and serious scholars like Patrick Kirch and people are really looking in detail at oral traditions to see what kinds of things can you establish that are likely to have some historical basis or which inform on historical events? And Heyerdahl, he kind of was part of why I think people weren't accepting what he was saying, was that there was a period of time you know, when there was this reaction against oral traditions. Among you know, anthropologists, you know, before people used to think that oral traditions were a kind of history. Yeah. Then anthropologists, I'd say, no, you know, they're not history. They're irrelevant to history. They're just kind of myths to it to justify, you know, why chiefs hold power or something like this. And that view prevailed from really the 1960s into the 90s, probably. Wow. Um, many archaeologists, a few, some exceptions, or into the 80s, certainly. And then, you know, the, the kind of pendulum swung the other way. And now... People are doing a lot of work with oral traditions and, and looking at them, particularly in places like Polynesia, where there are long, many generational traditional histories that have been have been recorded. Yeah, Hawaii is a standout case because, you know, the population you know, by about 1840 had a higher literacy rate than in England. And they write, there were endless Hawaiian newspapers that were just full of these you know, traditional accounts of, you know, chief this and king that. And so Heyerdahl... Part of, I think, his thing of I'm right and they're all wrong was that he thought that basically the indigenous kind of stories really had something in them. And in that, he wasn't ahead of his time because when he started, 
you know, all the anthropologists used to think that. But he kind of missed out on the period in the middle where they stopped thinking thinking about that, you know. So I think that's one of the things that isolated him, where in fact he was right to take these indigenous traditions and things very seriously. Of course, you know, as so often happens, he wove them into agreeing with his story that he already had, you know. So it, it looked like he was being led by the indigenous stories, but he already had the idea already, you know. Uh, so it's like ba backwards science, right? You make up the yeah. theory first and then you go find the evidence for it. Yeah, well, that's certainly what he did. And that's why <laughs> a lot of his, um, so, uh, you know, American Indians in the Pacific, I mean, that massive tome. Yeah. That's that's what that was. I mean, basically, a lot. he had his idea and he went out and he said, oh, look, there's a you know stone artifact here. It looks like a stone artifact. Yeah. He, he went out to prove it rather than just kind of having an open mind on it. But certainly, I think in evaluating Heyerdahl, I think his respect for sort of native traditions, even if he was kind of perhaps not consciously, but certainly subconsciously sort of manipulating them to fit his theory. Right. I think that, that was uh, that's actually a sort of a positive you know, aspect to his career. There was a, an opposition politician here who, always used to say that his job was to keep the bastards honest. And I think hey, there's a bit of that in people like Heyerdahl, um, in that when you do get people and they're kind of saying crazy things, but then you start looking, oh, the general public says, oh, this is great, you know, like ancient Egyptians went to South America or something. Scientists then have to kind of tighten their arguments and also engage with the public more. And that's got to be a good thing. Yes. Kind of need these maverick figures. You know, so there's positive things about Haydar. And he did popularize the Pacific, basically. I mean, Easter Island, he kind of created the tourist industry in many ways. I read something that said he inspired a whole generation of people that go become archaeologists, many of whom grew up to criticize his work. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose I'm one of them. I mean, I, you know, I knew all about his work when I was a little kid and just signed to be an archaeologist. It wasn't until much later, I decided to become a Pacific archaeologist. But yeah. um, I'm sure in the back of my mind somewhere was something about Torhead Island, the Contigi, and all this Easter Island, and uh, and all that kind of stuff. What do you make about the elephant in the room is the white bearded man business? <laughs> well, I mean, I was I was trying to be gentle on him in, in the end of my little article, but I would have yeah, you know, I kind of suspect that he had this idea from the start, really, that it's an old idea. You know, it's, it, it, he didn't make it up, that white people civilized the world. Uh, there are versions of, of this going back for centuries, you know. He grew up in a time when that was a sort of, you know, quite a common viewpoint, and he uh, kept at it. But I think I mentioned in the article that basically I think people were prepared to consider that he had some contribution to make until the Ra voyages of 1969. because. Uh -huh. That's when it became obvious that it's really all about white Caucasians bringing civilization to the dumb natives. Yeah, with the Contiki, that's essentially what he was saying in many ways, but it wasn't overt enough that everybody kind of immediately picked up and said, hang on a minute, this is just racism. But by the time of the Ra expedition, and then all of his subsequent work was all really about the same thing including that awful stuff he was doing, you know, Tor, you know, Thor was a, was a real person and lived in Russia or something, you know, where he got in with some very dodgy, dodgy people in the, investigating that. And, you know, then, by then I think every, you know, he was lampooned in the press in Norway and he really lost a lot of credibility. 
but it was the same idea all the way through. So uh, you mentioned Tor Jr. And, and other people have, have said that. I mean, it's, it's the classic question. If you know a person is a, a child of their time, should we judge them according to the values of that time? You know, is that fair that we don't? You had pointed out that the minimum we should do is try to learn more about where he was getting his intellectual ideas. Is that mm. what you were saying? Or yeah. did, did I get that right? Yeah, no, no. I mean, yeah, because after he died, you know, the classic, you know, the great man with the feet of clay. And I don't think we judge him by chucking labels around. I think I said that, you know, if somebody held his views now, you'd just call right. him a racist. Right. No, right. You know, you've got some basically say, look, you know, all the civilization of the world is really white people. They took it there and they, you know, they gave it to these bloody people who were kind of stupid before. And you go, ah, oh, okay, well, isn't that view a bit racist? <laughs> Did he even go so far as to talk about skull size and stuff? Uh, I don't know. I mean, linked he, to intelligence and not that I know of. Okay. Um, but that's the sort of milieu in which he was operating. Uh, not least because remember, he was, when he was enrolled at University of Oslo, right. he was in the biology. Um, right. sort of mm -hmm. area mm -hmm. and there were definitely people in his department and these kind of the sort of the skull measurers were uh, certainly around but then they were around everywhere you know there were people at the bishop museum who were gaily measuring skulls and talking about all this kind of stuff um you know in the 30s was the heyday of all this stuff about you know what is the effect of race mixing you know yeah. hawaii was a kind of the you know they all rushed over to hawaii to study it you know um so yeah, I mean, this is just the intellectual background of the time. I suppose it, it, in some ways it's a problem of everybody lives too long. If you, you know, right. that, that you develop your views in the 1930s. If you're still talking about them in the 1990s, as he was, then, yeah, you look silly. If you haven't changed your views or realized that the subject's moved on. I can think of a couple sites like... Uh, uh... James Watson of Watson and Crick. Uh, oh, God. Heard it. What was it? it said he had, there was a genetic difference between black people and white people. I mean, was yeah. it something like that? Yeah, no, he, he was, uh, he just became a you know, disgusting sort of racist. Yeah. But he was, you know, he was, okay, I'll call him brilliant in his time, you know, when he was younger, hmm. but it's almost like you're saying as time went on, he got older and older. I don't know. <laughs> Sometimes you should just, uh, you, you can hold whatever views you want, but sometimes you should just shut up. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember once there was this old guy giving a paper at a conference. I was sitting next to a fella, you know, we're sitting there rolling our eyes. He's talking about, you know, he, he, he was kind of equating these these pots with sort of people, you know, which was a sort of common thing that was done a long time ago. And he had, yeah, the black and red people and the, <laughs> would have looked very interesting. And all this stuff. And this friend turned to me, he says, Matthew says, if I ever give a paper like that in my dotage, just shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh. I get I'm getting more conscious of this. I, uh, I, I, some, maybe some of my great ideas uh, aren't as great as I think they are. So, so what do you make of, of his, he was really fixated on that person, you know, what, what Victor called being there. I've been there and you haven't, you just sit in your ivory tower. So I have more credibility, but what, what was going on there? Do you think? 
Well, a lot of the uh, the anthropologists who were talking about these issues, certainly in the 30s and and largely into the 50s, were museum anthropologists. Okay. They studied the collections that had entered their museums and they made prognostications about them, you know, like, oh, this shows that they're related to these people over here. And so that was his thing was, well, I've been, you know, you talk about the Marquesas or wherever, but I've been there and you haven't, you know, you're just a buddy, some guy sitting, sitting at a desk in New York and you're, you know, belittling me, but I've actually been to these places. So that, I think that was part of his thing. And of course the being there thing, relates to meeting the you know the indigenous people right and talking to them and learning their their traditions and stuff like that so that was part of the being there was was to do with that well i got a lot here to go on i really i really appreciate your time um thank you very much sir okay uh, you're uh, you're fun to talk to <laughs> i wish you were my major professor I, I bailed out of a PhD program and got a master's, man. I would wish you were my professor. I've now happily retired and I'm no longer supervising people. Good for you. <laughs> okay, right. All nice right. Talk. Likewise. Thanks so much. So whether you think Heyerdahl's hypotheses were plausible or otherwise, scientific or not, you may well ask, what's the harm? Who cares if he convinced a segment of the global population of his theories? Well, one of the most interesting things I found was a review of Heyerdahl's 1989 book, Easter Island, The Mystery Solved, where Heyerdahl proposed he had the answer, as I understand it, I, I haven't read the book, how the Moai statues, how these big giant black statues came to be, what they meant, and a well-respected archaeologist, Joanne Van Tilburg from UCLA, who has spent decades researching the statues, digging them up, working with the elders of the island, she wrote a scathing review of Heyerdahl's book in the journal Archaeology, January 1991. And I want to present this to you because several points she made seem to highlight what so upset the scientific community and why Heyerdahl's pronouncements could be harmful. In the review in 1991, Van Tilburg talks about the ongoing great international effort of archaeological research on Easter Island, Rapa Nui, where scholars from many countries collaborated and continue to collaborate to survey the island, adding to the body of knowledge about the origins of Rapa Nuians. Even though Heyerdahl had access to all that research, he chose to ignore it in his book because, as she says, it did not support his position. It didn't support his hypotheses, or theories is what he called them. But most concerning was the business of funding and the professional ethics of archaeology. If the Easter Island mystery is solved, future archaeologists coming to the island after Heyerdahl might find their funding drying up after all. If this famous guy says it's all wrapped up, mystery solved, who would want to fund further research there? Van Tilburg says even though Heyerdahl is not an archaeologist, he certainly encourages the public to consider him one. So she continues, therefore I suggest that the same standards must be applied to him and his work as are applied to serious professionals. She said he cannot make exaggerated or misleading statements. He can't take credit for work done by others, and he's obligated to stay informed about developments in the field. 
She obviously felt that he didn't follow these standards. Well, 11 years went by after that review. Presumably she had cooled off a little bit. And in 2002, Joanne Van Tilburg, who had dragged Heyerdahl over the coals for his Mystery Solved book, was asked, or maybe she volunteered, to write his obituary in the Guardian newspaper, published on April 19, 2002. And I encourage you to look it up. What she said is this. Tor Heyerdahl, who has died of cancer age 87, was one of the great individualistic standard bearers of the mid-20th century adventure. In 1947, he and his five-person crew climbed aboard the Contiki, an experimental balsa raft, and swept atop the Pacific's Humboldt Current from Peru to the Tuamotu Islands and into history. She noted that Heyerdahl had this idea that South Americans might have contacted Polynesia. She goes on to say, running through the numerous books and papers that he wrote, she said there was this, quote, complex, contradictory persona of a man who thought like an outsider, but not an outcast, demanding, opinionated, but sensitive and kind. Throughout his career, he stubbornly cast himself in steady counterpoint to academia. He refused to play by the most basic rules of academic interchange, yet bristled when faced with criticism and promptly took his case to the welcoming court of public opinion. And yet, despite Heyerdahl's antipathy for academics and authorities in general, archaeologists who worked with him liked and respected him. And she mentions, interestingly, on the 1955 Easter Island expedition where Heyerdahl invited five other scientists along, he gathered them all together and said, gentlemen, you know my theories. And then he instructed them to go on their ways without fear of interference. He was open-minded and always fair, even when their results failed to prove his theories. She went on. He published many books and papers, gave lectures, made documentary films, and won awards. He championed conservation and environmental awareness. And she said he was very conscious of his undisputed celebrity status as a world figure and Norwegian national treasure. She finished by saying he took everyone on larger-than-life adventures. He took us all on a magnificent exploratory sail, tacking relentlessly from one direction to another, but always heading towards a new island just over the horizon, and always before the wind. I thought she said it well. Now, you've just heard the words of two archaeologists, two scientists, and to be even-handed be journalistic about this, to be scientific about this, I recommend you read other opinions about Heyerdahl's connection with science before you make up your own mind. For me, Heyerdahl was a great man, a heroic man, a maverick, determined, bullheaded, opinionated, stubborn, but inspirational and engaging and convincing writer, and a gentleman. He gave archaeology specifically Polynesian archaeology a huge boost with his raft expedition, and now the Kantiki Museum in Oslo is an absolute must-see. In fact, they're building a new one to open in 2023. But Heyerdahl was perhaps more of a fringe scientist, if there is such a title, rather than a standard one. 
I'd like to thank Dr. Matthew Spriggs from ANU for sharing his insights and expertise and encouraging me to finish this podcast, and Joanne Van Tilburg from UCLA for letting me read part of her articles on Heyerdahl. I'll put links to some of their work on our website. I thank Dr. Don Ryan of Pacific Lutheran University and Sven Hokanson from the University of Washington, who I also interviewed for the podcast. Both provided insights into Heyerdahl himself or on how archaeology is done. Various authors also contributed insights. I'll try to put links uh, on our website for that. Michael Gordon on the demarcation of science. Don Ryan, I mentioned. Victor Melander and Patrick Kirch. We don't have time for a song in this podcast, so instead I'll recommend you listen to the Scandinavian Hour Music Variety Show this coming weekend. It's streamed every Saturday at 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. Pacific. The host, Seth Tuftelon, plays a wide variety of folk, jazz, 70 dance bands, choral numbers, even Western music from Iceland to Finland to expatriates in the USA. Our intro music is Morton Alfred Hoyrup's lovely Ingela's Waltz, played with him on guitar and Ruthie Dornfeld on fiddle. Both of them have websites, and you can even buy the sheet music for the waltz, along with other compositions from Hoyrup's website. He's at mortonalfred, all one word, lowercase, dot com. Catch our interview with him in Nordic on Tap episode number one. Our exit music is composed and performed by Daryl Jackson at Daryl Jackson Music, all one word, dot com, who we also interviewed on our podcast. Check that out, too. Finally, please visit our website, nordicontap.com, to get the fullest experience of every podcast episode, where links to associated websites and documents and papers and cool photographs are posted. And do feel free to leave a comment if you liked the episode or if you didn't like the episode. Don't forget to take our survey. It only takes 15 minutes, and I will write you back personally if you choose to give me your email address. And so, vices nestigon. We'll see you again next time on Nordic on Tap. Hade Gott.